Welcome back to Stream Again, the TV and streaming podcast that will never crack down on you sharing our love of television and streaming with your friends and family. You, dear listeners, share away because we would just love to be in the ears of anyone who wants to listen to us, your hosts, Chris Barlow and Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing excellent. We were just talking pre-show. I saw the Mario movie today at long last. And while it is not yet on streaming, I agree that you can wait until it's on streaming. And I say this as a lover of Mario, but Mario is doing very well right now and will do just okay if you wait and save your precious pennies for a month of Peacock down the road. Good choice. Good choice overall. I mean, saving your precious pennies for Peacock, always a good choice overall. But this week, no time to talk about Peacock, no time to talk about the Hulus or the Disney Pluses of the universe, because this week we are all in on the OG streamer themselves. That's right, we're talking this week about Netflix, because there is so much Netflix news and Two of the hottest shows on streaming right now happen to be on Netflix. They are Beef and The Night Agent, and we are going to talk about both of them later this episode. You know, according to Deadline, one of them just doubled their viewership week over week, and the other is climbing the Netflix overall TV top 10 charts. But, Diane, I think you would agree with me. I say they are two very different ends of the Netflix original series spectrum. My goodness, yes, I agree. They could not perhaps have less in common, except that we enjoyed them both for reasons you will have to wait to find out. Because first, as always, we have to get to the news. And before we get to all Netflix all the time, we have to do a quick piece of follow-up on a looming story we have been talking about for weeks now. Yes, Once again, we check in on the writer's strike, which I will have to make a sound effect for because it has been approved, which means it is almost definitely coming. Writers, strike! Ooh, kaboom! We just got it. That was the sound effect. I'm going to mint that. You'll hear it again in the future uh, because the writers of the Writers Guild, uh, they voted with over 97% of voting members in favor of authorizing a strike, which would begin next month. Yeah, uh, it seems more and more likely every day that this will happen. Uh, I don't think anyone was surprised that by this yes vote, but I think some folks were surprised by just how strongly in favor the membership was. I mean, over 97% is practically all the members. Yeah, that's big. That's big. I'd heard uh, from WGA members uh, leading up to the vote that that they were hoping, that the organizer were hoping for 98% approval, which when I heard that number, I thought, 98%? I mean, I know a lot of people are in favor, but that seems like a really high bar to clear, and they almost cleared it. Yeah, 97.85% is... So close. (laughs) So close. I think we can round up for them. Yeah, I think we're going to give them that one. Uh, You know, we'll we'll see how it goes. Just as a a little trip down memory lane, the last major writer's strike was November 5th, 2007 to February 12th, 2008. It went on much longer than anyone expected. Uh, This time around, there's a, a lot of negotiating around residuals and how writers make their money off of streaming. But if you go back to 2007, they were arguing about residuals on DVDs. And ironically, or perhaps fortuitously, the Guild actually let a lot of the DVD stuff go in the final deal, and they focused on their other demands, which, you know, spoiler alert, that was the right 
you know, bargain to make. Uh, so, you know, that just reminded me that we're going into this. We know so much about what the Guild wants and so much about what makes it hard uh, for working writers to make a living uh, in the current streaming climate. We also, as we talk about on this show so much, know how hard it is for the streaming companies to make a profit paying for these shows. So both are in a, a very different position than they were, you know, back in the day, 16 almost years ago now. Uh, but what comes to mind for me is what of these things that they're negotiating will be completely irrelevant in 10 years what is the dvds of today so i don't know if they'll be irrelevant but i do think they'll go i think we might say goodbye to the mini room yeah, you know, if you're not that into this side of the industry, one of the biggest things that the the WGA members are uh, really looking to make changes on is this idea of a mini room, which is when a, a show is in development and they put together a mini writer's room ahead of the real writer's room in which they ask all the writers to basically do all of the work that you would do in a real writer's room, except they don't actually write the scripts and so they don't have to pay them nearly as much. Right, then everyone is getting their the minimums instead of getting, you know, a a good amount or what what they would have gotten previously. So, yeah, that may be wishful thinking on my part, but if if this is the death of mini rooms, you know, I I won't complain. Uh, you know, there is uh, many people, I think, who would be there right with you, very excited. You know, the industry is already responding to the threat of a strike. I was talking to one friend uh, who said he had a really, really busy January where he, he almost had to turn down offers for small work. And that was because everyone was trying to wrap their work ahead of the strike. And now he says it's night and day. He, You know, the strike hasn't even happened. But just the knowledge that a strike is very much on the table means lots of production companies are not working on anything that needs to be in the writing stage right now, because why would you start a room knowing that it's going to get interrupted in two weeks? Right. I was talking to someone who works on a late night show, and I will be vague about which show, but a show that airs at night. And uh, they... PBS NewsHour. (laughs) Don't tell, Chris. (laughs) And they mentioned that they were working on an episode for May 3rd that no one knows if it's going to exist, but they're still <laughs> pitching something for it. Yeah. You know, and we Out will be time. here. We'll, we'll let you know how it's going. That is about all we know right now. And this is a fast-moving story, so I don't want to linger on it for too long, lest they come to an agreement like Fox News and Dominion voting at the last possible minute just to make us all, uh, you know, a little disappointed. In this case, I think an agreement would probably be good news. But when you're here for the drama, you want to see the drama. That's a perfect transition. (laughs) Yeah, you know, what better time than a a dramatic segue to talk about all the drama happening at Netflix. And we begin with the most dramatic story of all, the Love is Blind live stream fiasco. Oof, she was messy. No kidding. I, I, I am not a Love is Blind viewer, but even a Love is Blind noob like myself could not help but observe the cataclysm that occurred on Sunday night when Netflix tried to do their second big live event of the year. Uh, we've talked before about Chris Rock. Chris Rock, that went on as planned, live. Uh, the Love is Blind special was different in one key way. It did not. Yeah, no. It it stood up all those viewers. Oh, oh, so hard. They didn't even get to see the faces of the people that they were there to see. Imagine getting stood up 
in such a public and humiliating way. And then the responses and apology tweet. This is worse than when Berger broke up with Carrie by post-it. Wow, it is dark. You're correct. Netflix uh, tried to get people to stay tuned. It was supposed to premiere at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sunday night. Uh, and they, they put out some tweets being, hang on, we're getting there. It's just a little technical difficulty. And then as it got towards 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, they, they changed their tune and said, you know, we're so sorry. Uh, it's going to be up as soon as we can put it up. But that does mean it'll be pre-recorded. And uh, there are a lot of reasons they threw in the towel there. Uh, one of them, obviously, they had talent and and you know employees on set you know at at a certain point they have to go home or go into overtime you have to make a judgment call whether you're going to film the thing or not Uh, but I I think another reason they got a little skittish as the clock ticked towards 9 p.m. might be you know I think they made an audible that there was no way that they were going to keep the uh, high viewership numbers they were hoping for uh, as they let people linger over an hour and then into the primetime viewing hour for one of the most appointment viewing shows on television right now. And and to be honest, I, I have the numbers in front of me. More people watched the Love is Blind special than watched any episode of Succession ever. That just factually, like, Love is Blind is more popular than Succession. But I do think, with especially what appointment viewing Succession has been the last couple of weeks, that they were not willing to hemorrhage even, you know, a few hundred thousand viewers who who were not going to miss Succession after what happened the week before. Sure. I mean, I thought we were all going to tune into 60 Minutes, but that's a good option, too. To each their own, to each their own. It's true. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there was something that needed to be said about this, not just because it was kind of a PR fiasco, but because it was a PR fiasco that happens to have occurred about 48 hours before Netflix's quarter one earnings call. So there was no way of avoiding a difficult conversation here. Uh, and so, you know, how did Netflix handle that? They put out a pre-recorded interview with co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters, a.k.a. the guy who is not Reed Hastings. Remember, Reed Hastings, no longer a co-CEO. And Greg Peters did most of the talking here, from what I can tell. Seems like the thing you make the new guy do. And uh, Greg Peters basically said that it was a software bug that they didn't catch until it was time to go live. And that this bug was introduced in a, a software change they did for their live streaming in order to improve it after the Chris Rock special. Because, of course, the follow-on question is, why did this not happen during the Chris Rock special? And the answer, ironically, is they were making some unknown, undescribed improvements, and that one of those improvements actually introduced a problem. Okay. I mean, it worked last time, though, right? Uh, yeah, I, what did you need to improve? It was successful the previous time. And, and I get it. Listen, there was probably a higher demand, a higher load of viewers expected live for the Love is Blind special. No shade to Chris Rock, but I just think in terms of what uh, generates buzzy appointment viewing, uh, a you know reality TV live reunion special generates more buzz and appointment viewership than any stand-up special ever, even a live one. Agreed. I would also guess that it has more global appeal than oh, something yeah. like Chris Rock, which might be more based in the UCAN region. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so, you know, ultimately, it did go up a whole 19 hours late, about noon the next day. And Greg Peters would like us to know, don't worry, it was still a hit, and that over 6.5 million people have tuned into the special, which, sure, sure, why not? Good for them. Good for everyone, except the team in charge of Netflix's live streaming capabilities, which I'm sure is doing a lot of soul-searching this week. Okay, but speaking of the earnings call, uh, but we'll start with the top line. It was not a great quarter for Netflix once again, but I want to remind you, a year ago, we were talking about perhaps the worst quarter Netflix ever reported ever, where they actually had a decline in subscribers, and that kicked off, if you recall, the panic year of 2022, HBO Max began vanishing shows out of existence. Everybody suddenly acted like making money was a surprise, and that turning a profit was a total twist that they never saw coming. Uh, And all of that began about a year ago, when Netflix's Q1 numbers were really bad, at least in Wall Street's eyes. Uh, So this time around, Wall Street not super pumped, let's say, different network, but you know what I mean. Uh, This time around, uh, Netflix added, added positive 1.75 million customers in Q1, but Wall Street was expecting uh, 2.41 million. Oh, I'm so sorry. What do you think, Diane? Is that a miss? Has Netflix just reached peak saturation? I mean, that is sort of the question. We're going to get to that. The total global subscribership number is two point. I'm sorry, two hundred thirty-two point five million globally. So you know there are more humans in the globe who could be subscribing, but it does feel like we're reaching a saturation point on humans willing to pay for it who are not already paying for it or <clears throat> accessing it. There we have it. Accessing it. Which, you know, uh, brings us just to slide, slide down our notes a little bit to some of the changes that are coming to Netflix. And some of these, of course, we already knew about. But the the big two I want to highlight in terms of this um, saturation question. Number one, we have known about this for so long now, and we're going to talk about it again. The impending password sharing crackdown. It's coming again. Any minute now. Again. Uh, you know, are you still afraid of it, Diane? I am. I am still afraid of it. I'm uh, worried about what it will mean for me personally, <laughs> though Netflix has said it went great for them in Canada. So thanks a lot. Canada. Right. Well, the story here, uh, they had told us that this was going to begin to spread in the U.S. by the end of Q1. Uh, And spoiler alert, Q1 ended and it did not begin the password crackdown. Uh, So in this earnings call, they said, no, 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 no. By the end of Q2, which means sometime in the next three months, essentially. uh, And they did tout how great it's been going in Canada. And I want to read this uh, quote from their letter to investors where they said, For example, in Canada, which we believe is a reliable predictor for the U.S., our paid membership base is now larger than prior to the launch of paid sharing and revenue growth has accelerated. I I just want to back up and say uh, the launch of paid sharing, which is their euphemism for the password crackdown. So they're saying since the password crackdown, a.k.a paid sharing was introduced, revenue growth has accelerated in the Canada market and is now growing faster than it is in the U.S. That was, I think, the real the, the, the real wink-wink there. They're saying to Wall Street, enough people 
either agree to pay for their shared accounts. And again, that's typically, we don't know in the U.S. yet, but typically somewhere along the lines of like $7.99 to add an additional shared person. Uh, or people are willing to suck it up and get their own account. And obviously, not everyone does. I, I think anyone listening to this who, like Diane or like myself, may be beneficiaries of a shared account, we are we are at least thinking, I'm not going to pay for that. I, you know, Or, you know, I'll only sign up again when my show comes back, when I want to see the new season of Stranger Things, or when I hear that there's another, you know, squid game that has to be binged, but then I'll binge it and cancel again. Uh, what I think Netflix is trying to tell Wall Street and, and maybe trying to tell us, their customers, is you'll be back. We have a wide range of prices and offerings and you'll be back. And in Canada, apparently, they were back. I hate that they're right. I, I You know, that's the thing is they are ultimately uh, right about a lot of this. They're in a good market position. It would not take much for me to be interested enough to sign back up to check out a beef or a night agent. I would maybe sign back up to check out a beef. Yeah. And honestly, as I say that, we, we aren't at the review yet. I would sign up to check out a beef, and then I would stick around to binge a night agent. They, what Netflix is doing mm-hmm. really well is they know that you, you can't be a service that only has blockbuster HBO-style hits. And you can't be a service that only has Discovery Plus filler material. What you need is a service that has both. Something really, you know, prestige a beef to drag people in, get them in the door and start paying. And then once they've signed up, there's a bit of, you know, inertia that's going to keep them checking it out for a little bit. And you then have an opportunity to hook them with the, let's say, empty carbs of a spy thriller or a new girl. Yeah. And as much as I think that an app like Max or Disney Plus would like to be in this position, I don't think that there is anything that's quite equivalent to Netflix in terms of that broad appeal right now. And maybe Max, when it's officially launched, will be that thing. Yeah, I I was going to say this playbook, as I describe it, I immediately feel like I'm sitting in a meeting with David Zaslav because Mm -hmm. this is his pitch for Max. He's saying we have one half of the equation on lockdown. We've got the prestige HBO content and it's not going anywhere. In fact, we feel so confident in that we're going to even erase the name from the title of the service because honestly, everyone who wants HBO is already signed up. Now what we need is to sign up more people who do not care that much about the HBO side of the equation and retain everyone so that when the show they signed up for ends, there's uh, something, anything that will keep them watching, keep them engaging in the app, whether that's House Hunters or some adult animation or, you know what, just go full F-Boy Island on it. You know what I mean? Sure. Or even if we all aren't admitting it to ourselves... Or to others, it's the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, it's uh, you know right? I was I was listening to uh, the extremely excellent uh, streaming podcast Downstream this week, mm-hmm. uh, and they were talking about how uh, sitcoms have classically struggled uh, on streaming, original sitcoms on streaming, and then they reminded me and themselves that there is a sitcom on Fox on the linear television network Fox called Call Me Cat starring Mayim Bialik from The Big Bang Theory that is now in its third season and has over like 60 episodes banked and will probably 
air long enough to have over 100 episodes and standard syndication somewhere, as well as a future on probably a fast streamer, free ad-supported streamer. Uh, and, and that, like, just the ability to churn out that material, nobody else can do it quite like the network television machine can. Right. And while a lot of people are watching those shows, shows like that on network, they also have a great ability to hold viewers to places like Netflix or HBO Max. Exactly. That was their point, that the streamers are all bad at creating that content from scratch, but they all crave it and in many ways thrive off of it. That, you know, uh, you saw it in the Max sizzle reel. There aren't that many uh, cuts from shows in the sizzle reel. It's a pretty tight sizzle reel that introduces Max. But boy, Friends is there and Friends is real front and center in that sizzle reel for a reason. I would never give up access to a streamer that had exclusive rights to friends. Yeah, and they, they know that. that That's the thing. And so I do think there there is a lot of, uh, let's say, moving parts there in finding the business model that both entices new customers with exciting new content, but then makes them feel uh, warm and cradled by their old favorites. And Netflix, you know, obviously knows that equation very well because they built their entire streaming business on it. But where they are struggling now is all of those you know, classic media companies, classic networks that are so good at making, you know, 52 seasons of Friends, 11 teen seasons of whatever Mayim Bialik is in, four more spinoffs of The Big Bang Theory. That's something that, you know, regular television networks, they are, they are somehow designed to create these shows that just generate all of these episodes that create the back catalog that is necessary for that comfort food. And Netflix has really struggled with the pullback of all of these, you know, traditional companies saying, no, our back catalog belongs on our service, or you have to pay us way more for our Seinfelds, because you know what? We know you need it. And so as we talk about later this episode, The Night Agent in particular, I think it's a really good case of Netflix finding, it's not a sitcom, but their own homegrown, uh, let's say, many, many seasons worthy filler material. I could easily see nine seasons of The Night Agent uh, in short order. Yeah, and maybe even some spinoffs. Yeah, which is what they want, which is what they want. But, you know, how will you watch all of these things? Because as we've talked about, the password crackdown is coming. And so the other side of this uh, equation that they hinted at very strongly in their earnings call, and I think factors into this uh, success in Canada with paid sharing, is, of course, basic with ads. Who doesn't love a little basic with ads. That is, of course, the name for the Netflix ad tier, which, if you uh, have forgotten, is only $6.99 a month. What a deal. And apparently, for $6.99 a month, Netflix makes money on your, your uh, you know, subscription dollars and then makes even more money on the advertising that you are forced to view. And so Netflix is proud to announce that they make more revenue per user on basic with ads than they do on their cheapest ad-free tier. They love basic with ads. Ooh, this is the future after all that time of no, 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 no ads on Netflix. Truly, like, are. what a difference one year makes. You go back like 18 months and anyone who's following Netflix would say, yeah, maybe ads will be inevitable one day in the distant future, but it, they're just allergic to it. It's just not in their culture. And now here we are, you know, less than a year into the launch of their first ad-supported product, and they would like us to know it's a hit. 
it's a hit, and they're making it a little bit better. Well, this gets to the second half of that, which is that they told us they want more people to sign up for Basic with ads. Uh, is In particular, I think they want more people to sign up with it instead of the cheapest ad-free tier. And so they basically took a couple of the features from the cheapest ad-free tier and kicked them down to Basic with ads. So now, your Basic with ads is high-definition Basic with 1080p high-def streaming, which honestly, the fact that that was not included before was a real knock against Basic with ads. Uh, and you can have two simultaneous streams instead of one, which I also think was too much of a limitation. They basically took the initial Basic with Ads product and they removed the two biggest flaws in it. You still can't download a video to watch offline with Basic with Ads, but uh, you can't do that with the upcoming Max Ad Light tier. Uh, and I honestly, as a consumer at least, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. If you're showing me the ad-supported version, I understand why I can't download things to watch offline. It may not be a direct connection, but somehow I, I feel like that's part of the bargain. It's a little more akin to traditional live TV. I have to sit through the ads. I have to watch it when I'm connected uh, to the, the airwaves, let's say. Uh, so I think they, they really, just in one very small announcement... Uh, changed the math on whether Basic with Ads is worth it. Yeah, I think that uh, the other thing there is for folks who are thinking about going to that tier, maybe because of the password crackdown, that may mean that they're sharing, that they have a, some sort of communal living situation, a lot of families. So if you still have two simultaneous streaming options, I think this makes, makes it an option for families, whereas before basic with ads wasn't really an option except for maybe single people yeah i was gonna literally was gonna say you have to imagine the customer in this situation and the customer for basic with ads previously was a sad lonely person who's been dumped by their ex and now lives alone and only watches things alone and has no one else to watch things with which is a weird customer to imagine because it's real depressing when instead your real customer base for this product is College kids, 20-somethings, people with roommates who've been mooching off their parents' Netflix or their ex's Netflix, and now they don't have access to that anymore. But they would be willing to split it three ways between three roommates and, okay, only two of us can watch at a time, but how often do all three of us want to watch three different things simultaneously? Whereas when it was one at a time, that is an issue. Just unrealistic that two or three people will share a subscription where only ever one stream at a time will be active. No way. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you're like an AMC Plus, but let's be real. You're Netflix. You're Netflix. And you want to be able to talk to people about what you're watching. Yeah, and Netflix wants people to be talking about what they're watching on Netflix. In that way, I, part of it, I think, is maybe them realizing that they designed a product nobody wanted before, and now they're seeing that that product is actually a big revenue boost. They, I, I don't know why that would be a surprise, because that's how Hulu's been doing it for years, and you have to think that they did the math when they planned this product. But it really reads to, you know, a lay viewer, like, they, they created a product that was so hobbled, perhaps due to their own distaste for the idea of the product. And now that they've seen it launch and they've seen what it can do for them overall, they're doing a 180 on it. Yeah. They're actually creating a product that they themselves would like to buy. Hey, it is much better now. Yeah. And, you know, so you would? You would do Basic with Ads? If I must. Same. 
If I had to, I would suck it up and honestly would be kind of curious what their ad targeting thinks of me. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I, I keep my Hulu with ads. Just to know. Mm-hmm. They think I want to buy a lot of car insurance. I don't know why. I don't know either. We live in New York. But man, I love State Farm. I just have so much brand affinity for State Farm now. Thanks to Peacock and Hulu. I'd never get a car. <laughs> but I would watch a lot of American Auto on Peacock, so maybe they're onto something. A anyway, we said this episode was all about Netflix. I am not going to get that distracted, unless it is by a shiny object in front of me. And I'm, of course, speaking about DVD discs. DVD discs, they're in the news. We have to take a quick minute to talk about the big DVD news. Oh, they had a good run. <laughs> oh, that's the news. Just, oh. Yes, Netflix has killed their DVD service for the second time ever, and this time they swear they mean it. Uh, if you do not recall, again, this episode is all trips down memory lane. Uh, Netflix tried to kill their DVD by mail service in 2011 when they announced that they were spinning it off as a separate company called Quickster. Quickster, spelled Q-W-I-S-T-E-R. I, I like to imagine it as kind of the grandfather to Quibi, just in terms of brands. Uh, Quickster had a, a long life. It lasted uh, perhaps even longer than Quibi uh, from September 19th, 2011 until October 10th, 2011, when Reed Hastings himself had to apologize for what a terrible idea Quickster was. Uh, and part of why people hated that so much is it was going to be just a completely separate subscription service. You were basically just going to have a 100% price increase if you subscribed to Netflix and got DVDs through the mail from them. Uh, now they have a simple solution to that PR crisis. They're just killing it. Goodbye. Quickster, we hardly knew you. This does show us that they've been trying to get rid of their DVD service for more than a decade. It, truly, truly. You know, it was still living on as DVD.com, a Netflix brand. Uh, and you can still get your shiny discs from DVD.com, limited time only through the end of September. So get them while they're hot. And then I assume there's going to be like a bunch of Goodwill stores near some very large mailing centers that are just going to be flooded with DVDs. Ooh, great day at the red box. <laughs> okay, that is enough about the big business of Netflix, because we are here to talk about more than a subscriber numbers and password apocalypses. I'm trying that one out. Uh, instead, we're going to transition to a very special report from none other than our senior fitness correspondent, Diane Nora. Diane is here to tell us all about how you can get fit on Netflix. Huh? I'm sorry, I'll see myself out. Take it away, Diane. So some of our listeners might remember that back in December, I think it was, I first <laughs> promised to report back on Netflix fitness collab um, with Nike, which is called the Netflix Times Nike Training Club Collection. Times, like the mathematical symbol? I mean, it's is Netflix it X? X. Yeah, yeah I would I say Times. Netflix Times. Would, would you call it Netflix X Nike? I've never had to say something with that branding out loud. And now I don't know. Now now I'm like thinking about algebra. It's hurting my brain. But it wouldn't be algebra. It, it would just be arithmetic, right? But anyway. Would, I, um, okay. Is there an equal symbol? <laughs> but that's that's not relevant unless it becomes relevant. You tell me. So... They've released even more at the end of March content. but like, That's why still... we waited. That's why we waited. We knew that was going to happen. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 
Still not that much. So if you were considering <laughs> Well, we knew it was going to be disappointing, too. We, we knew it was going to happen, but we knew to keep our expectations low. That's why we waited. We This was all planned, is what Diane's telling you. Oh, you bet. Mm-hmm. So my overall take would be that the content is pretty good. The workouts are good. The interface is a joke, which for me is the opposite of my issue with Netflix most of the time, which is interesting. So there are 20 categories of workouts. Uh, according to Tadum, the Netflix blog, which we can link in the show notes, but I'll get back to that number in a sec. Um, so you can find them on the platform and you see each of these programs as if it's its own like Netflix show. Uh, and the categories are given a range of titles. Some are easy to understand and navigate like 10 minute workouts, yoga, hit in strength with Tara. While some of them are completely unclear what they are, like Kickoff with Bettina Gozo, Ignite and Inspire with Kirsty Godzo, I'm not sure what either of those actually do in their workouts, but that did lead me to wonder why no one has yet developed a fitness program with Gonzo, because I would totally do like a Muppets fitness program. Disney Plus. I'm saying I would I would totally do that on Disney Plus. And then they could add a merch button and I could buy like Gonzo's like Lycra suit. I'd be I'd mm-hmm. be there. Some little like Elmo sweatbands. Oh yeah. Okay, so getting back to Tadum to though, they did say uh that there would be 20 programs and you can find them by searching the word Nike on Netflix. Okay. I searched the word Nike on Netflix. I found 19 programs, which is sure most of what they promised, but it also suggested I might be interested in watching Matilda the musical, which I kind of am, but you're supposed to be encouraging me to exercise Netflix. There's a lot Uh, of choreography in Matilda the musical. They might have worn Nikes during rehearsal. Sure. You you could dance along and probably get quite the workout. There you go. Um, Once I found what I was looking for, I really found the programs pretty good. The trainers are like charming. They're they're pretty clear on what you need to do. There are some personalities there. Um, And I did like break a sweat, but a lot they really need to work on the organization and the labeling of them. Um, So like here are a couple of my quibbles. Two of the 10 minute workouts I tried were longer than 13 minutes long. And I understand that when it says 10 minutes, you might be pushing 11 or even 12. But once you get to 13 minutes, if I'm looking for a 10 minute workout, I'm probably squeezing it around work or other meetings. Like that just seems like excessive. Just call it a 13 minute workout if that's what it is. And then another one, uh, aside from one program called Kickstart with the Basics, none of them at all list their experience level or intensity level that they're going to be. So I just assumed, okay, they'll be for all levels and they'll maybe offer some modifications for folks who are like newer to exercise or who might not be as strong. But no, if you assume that you may be uh, like I was 13 minutes into a 20 minute high intensity dumbbell hit class before discovering it was designated as an advanced class. It didn't so, say it anywhere in the description. Did did they reveal it to you in like a surprise twist? The trainer said it. She was like, you know, so this isn't advanced, so you should really be feeling it. And I was like, I am. <laughs> 
I really am. Now, I don't blame the talent involved for this, but like, why is Netflix organizing it this way? If it's not just that they've kind of given up on this programming, if they did give up, why did they just add more to it? Um, I personally think that this programming is worth checking out if you're looking for, if you pay for Netflix already, it's included with all the payment tiers. And, you know, if you're already paying for it, it's better than paying for something else, but it's not as good as its competitors in this field, I would say. Um, but they need to introduce way more content for this to be a sustainable alternative to your fitness regimen. And they just need to put a fitness link like right on the homepage. Well, I, I just think that your biggest takeaway being the interface is bad immediately reminds me of our first review of this year of 2023, uh, Kaleidoscope, which was the yeah. choose your own adventure Netflix show that that completely botched the concept in execution. And so much of that. Listen, I, I admit I have watched all of it, was not a huge fan of the, the show itself. But my biggest complaint is that they sold me. Netflix sold me this experience and that it would be enabled by their technology. And then they just fell on their face in using their technology to enable the experience that they promised me. And it's I am getting such deja vu hearing you say, yeah, the content is there and compelling in its own right. If only you can find it. Maybe they don't care that much about fitness. And this is just like one small thing they want to add for people who you know, are already Netflix subscribers. But it does say something to me for what might be the future of Netflix gaming, mm -hmm. which for which the interface will really matter and which we know is an area in which they're looking to grow. And they're going to need to make this stuff work. Yeah, and th those are two areas that they're expanding into that do not speak to their strengths uh, the way that th I think they thought they would. You know, mm -hmm. they think we're a technology company and these are technology features. But in reality, they are a media company. Again, a, a lesson they seem to be relearning over and over again the last, like, two years. Uh, and that, you know, they're going into spaces where there are established players who are way more savvy with customer expectations about these services. You know, if Netflix really wants to get into game streaming, they're going up against Microsoft, and Microsoft is doing game streaming so well, Sony doesn't even know how to touch them. And Sony makes the PlayStation 5, which is like the marquee video game product of the times. And and Netflix thinks they can compete with Microsoft? I, that That is a real question mark to me. And again, nothing we've seen recently makes it look like they're good at at tweaking their core product to speak to these other products. And so do you have to spin it off into its own separate product? Like, does Netflix Fitness have to be a different app or website? Does it have to be a quickster that you interface with completely separately, but is maybe provided by your Netflix plan? Or do they have to re rebuild from the ground up to make a, a feature like that compelling enough or just usable enough to win over uh, enough people for it to be worth their time and money. Because when you say how many programs are on there, even after they've added more, I just think, well, if I got that into to Netflix Nike, Netflix Times Nike, I, I would run <laughs> out of things that are in my wheelhouse at my experience level and fit in my allotted amount of time really quickly. And I don't really love really repetitive same video workout over and over again. 
again. And maybe they have some stats that say a lot of people do love to do the same one over and over again. But I need a lot of variety so that if I'm coming back to an old one, it's been a week, a month at least since I've done it. Right. And within some of those programs, there are multiple episodes um, up to I think the most is 21. So it's not like there are only 19 workouts, but that's still not that many. Again, especially when you consider type of workout, duration of workout, skill level being a huge one. Because if you're trying to do something new, like like HIT scares me. You're talking about doing high-intensity inter- interval dumbbell workouts. I'm like, I, I'm horrified. All I can imagine is a dumbbell flying into my television as I lose control <laughs> of it. And so I would... I would never try one of those if I was not 100% sure it was the beginner level course. There is a separate Nike fitness app that you can already download. And this partnership is just like introducing some of that content to Netflix. So I'm not sure exactly what their partnership is if Netflix like is trying to lure people over to Nike. But I can't see why they would do that. Yeah, it's that's just... it's such an interesting collab, actually, because it really speaks to Nike not having the expertise or the the will to spin up their own service uh, with the reach of Netflix. And so each of them is looking at the other partner, probably with a little bit of skepticism, like, are you going to stab me in the back and betray me? But also with a sense of, you have what I want and can't do well myself. Let's see if we can make a go of this. Yeah, I could also see... A partnership going with something like Microsoft, who we've learned they love their new ad tier, <laughs> which is being administered by Microsoft, you know? So so if they can trust Microsoft with something like that, maybe something like gaming or fitness would be a space that they could rely on them for. Maybe they could ask Microsoft how to make a live stream work. Microsoft's got a lot of cloud. <laughs> Maybe. Just saying. Well, you know, thank you, Diane, for that extremely special report. Uh, What I now challenge you to is when the password apocalypse comes, you need to check back in and tell us what kind of ads are in Basic with Ads times Nike times Netflix. I'll I'll do my best. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I will do my best now to achieve a seamless transition to this week's reviews. Yes, we have a Netflix double header this week. We are talking about two of the most popular series currently available on Netflix, The Night Agent and Beef. And this is a combo review that I'll be referring to repeatedly as The Night Beef. Mm. Uh, the Night Agent and Beef, both relatively new. We are going to talk about the first three episodes of each. Uh, and, you know, we'll go one show at a time, but we are going to kind of talk about how they compare to each other. So I'm going to just give you the combined spoiler warning right off the top. Uh, first three episodes of both of them. I-, I honestly think if you're just curious on these shows, stay tuned with us. Uh, join us for this spoiler-ish uh, ride because each has a long runway after the first three. And so you, uh, if this whets your appetite to check them out, I think it'll be worth your while. Do you agree, Diane? Wholeheartedly. Then let's start with The Night Agent, because The Night Agent is the most popular show on Netflix this week. And uh, I have some stats here that the more I read them, the more they blow my mind. Uh, Had you heard of The Night Agent before like two weeks ago? No. I only thought that we should review it when I saw that it had been renewed. And I think you're the same. 
Yes, yes, it got renewed one week after it premiered, and that was the first time I had heard of it. And then, then when I saw like a, a tile for it, I thought maybe I saw a tile for this earlier, but but thought it was a different show, like The Night Manager or something like. Like it's such a generic name. I did pass by the tile and think maybe I saw this tile three days ago and didn't know what it was. Uh, but it is really new. So for all I know, the first time I heard about it was when they renewed it after it broke uh, opening week records essentially. Uh, And so right now, The Night Agent is on Netflix's top 10 uh, most watched TV shows ever list. Uh, But you do have to understand, you know, every list has a bunch of um, rules and caveats around it. So let me be clear. This is a metric Netflix uses uh, very significantly to decide whether to renew shows. It is basically viewership over the first 28-day release window. And so this is a huge number. Most shows live or die on Netflix by how they do on the first 28-day window. And it was really notable that The Night Agent got renewed less than a week into that window. That was unusual and a sign of real strength. So now we are nearing the end of that beautiful 28-day window, and The Night Agent is the number six most watched TV show on Netflix, having bumped down other very well-regarded shows like Inventing Anna and Stranger Things Season 3. Just the fact that they now, they've pushed down a Stranger Things, that's big. That's huge, especially for a show that I don't really hear a lot of people talking no, about. I know Are nobody who's watching this. I, that's my question, too. Is everyone just ashamed that they're watching this, like, bulk, pulpy spy thriller on Netflix? Or is no one in our coastal elite community watching it, but everyone in the middle of the country is devouring it? I, to be honest, I'm surprised my parents haven't told me about it yet because it's got huge Jack Ryan vibes. Yeah, and you mentioned The Night Manager before, which I think was on Prime. This is kind of like The Night Manager, but a little bit cornier and uh, real fun. (laughs) Well, yeah, like corny, but fun all at once. So The Night Mm -hmm. Agent is based on a a novel, which I think lends a lot of the bones to this uh, being so, so, um, having so much momentum, being so pulpy and uh, forward moving, even when it is cliched. Uh, the, The book was by an author named Matthew Quirk. Uh, What matters for us is that it's a thriller. It's a thriller about an FBI agent who's taking a sleepy night desk job in the White House, answering a phone that never rings until it rings, the night agent. But it also involves, like, the FBI, sure, but spies and terrorism. The Secret Service, the White House Mm -hmm. Chief of Staff. There's always the White House Chief of Staff walking around, making you wonder, how much do they actually do in reality? Leo seemed busy. I know, big Leo McGarry vibes here. Uh, so, so this night, this night agent, he's not actually a night agent. He's an agent at night. The night agents are, in fact, some kind of secret spy program that the president monitors, which is a very rational-sounding thing uh, for this series. So the president has a, a secret program of night agents who are out deep cover, kind of like the Americans, except good guys. Uh, and, and the night agents, they do stuff super secret. What matters at the beginning of this show is a pair of night agents call the hotline. And our main character, um, Peter Sutherland, agent, 
Peter Sutherland. He answers the hotline and uh, just receives code names and like a piece of information, uh, not super clear. And and it's confusing because the person calling him also doesn't really seem to know what she's saying. So we see the other half of this, which is that uh, this young woman who's been staying with her aunt and uncle, it seems, uh, her aunt and uncle are very murdered very suddenly. They were the night agents, and they have a secret that there's some kind of bad thing happening and a spy in the White House. Ooh, night agent. Ooh, night agent. Night agent. It was so exciting. I didn't want to stop after three episodes. No, me neither. Like, the formula has been done before, but there is a level of, I never know who on this show is good and who isn't. Other than I'm pretty sure I trust Peter, our protagonist. Other folks have introduced doubt about whether or not he is really a good guy. But I think based on, you know, the cold open of the show, he's preventing a terrorist attack from being a much worse terrorist attack. I think we're allowed to trust Peter, but really everyone else is fair game. Yeah, and, and there's something about how the show frames everything, where we always sort of have Peter's point of view, even when we're in scenes that he is not a part of. It's not completely locked to his POV, but we only trust who he trusts. We only are able to assess the allegiance of anyone as well as he is able to assess the allegiance of anyone. And so, you know, we already talked about the White House Chief of Staff. In the first three episodes, I flipped, like, four times between, she's a good guy, she's a bad guy, she's a good guy, she's a bad guy, she's a good guy, but the president is a bad guy. Or maybe they're both good guys. I don't know. She's someone I've seen before. Why do I know her? Oh my gosh, that's Hong Chao. Oscar nominated (laughs) actress Hong Chao just in a really weird wig. Or why is her hair white? Did they dye it? I I don't know. I I felt like there was a leftover box of wigs from House of the Dragon that they were like, well, (laughs) you know, we dusted up a bit. It goes from white to silver. It's good. It's good. It's not on the same network. They they rented it. It's a garage sale. They went to the Hollywood Goodwill, and there was a Mm -hmm. box of HBO wigs. They went, we'll take it. We'll take it. I mean, she's still doing good work, but I keep expecting her to, like, pull off off the the wig wig. (laughs) and be like, part of this was all a ruse. I'm actually 35 and gorgeous. Yeah, I will say a large portion of the time that I spent thinking she is a double agent or a villain is mostly wig related. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Fun show. That's the thing. It's fun. Is this highbrow? Absolutely not. And I don't want it to be. It takes itself seriously in a self-knowing way, where the show is self-serious, but it's also aware that it is a pulpy spy novel adapted to the screen. And so... I find that refreshing. There's a confidence to it that makes me go, yeah, I'd like to sit down pretty much any night and make some popcorn and watch The Night Agent. I do wonder if it will fall into some of the traps of this genre, Um, namely uh, some like really nasty stereotyping of uh, minority folks. And I don't think it's done that too much yet. So I'm I'm tentatively optimistic. I very much enjoyed the Netflix series Bodyguard. Did you see that? Not uh, just the beginning. 
it's English, but it's it's sort of like this kind of thing, you know, a spy thriller, really intense. But that uh, really fell into some nasty Islamophobic traits. And so if this could steer around those, I'm, I'm really hoping for that. Uh, you know, 24 had that issue too. Um, the homeland sometimes. It, it's just oh, yeah. like something that if, if it can, if they can find a way to subvert it, I think that might elevate this. Yeah, I, actually, I think that's a really good call out and would make it kind of a, a new standard bearer in this genre because uh, I used to love to rewatch 24. We want to go back like 10, 12 years w- with DVDs. I would be on Quickster, not literally on Quickster at my college campus library, which had a great DVD selection. And yes, I would rip them all for personal use, which may or may not be legal. So don't count this as a confession. I was uh, speaking in a comic fashion, uh, speculating in a comic fashion as Frank or Peter or Jerry would. That's a reference to last week's episode. Uh, But I do think that I would struggle to rewatch 24 now because I am aware of how cringy so many of these choices are. Uh, And I would love something that scratches that same itch. But I I agree. So many of the standard bearers of that genre have some really fatal flaws that make me feel bad for having enjoyed them in the past, which is not the experience I go to a comfort watch for obviously. Yeah, and with this show, I I completely agree with you. With this show, we do have several leads who are people of color, and I think that's really refreshing. And they are, you know, on sort of both sides, on the, like, civilian side, in the Secret Service, we have a few, um, and also in the different government roles. So that's great. I I feel like we're seeing a, a variety of types of Americans represented in a way that this kind of work doesn't often embrace. Yeah, especially straight white male hunks always need to be yeah. represented on TV. Uh, and and But I will say, the fact that Peter Sutherland is sort of the exception to the rule on this show is refreshing in a way. Obviously, it could perhaps be more refreshing if the protagonist was one of the diverse cast members. But playing in the genre it's playing in, it's kind of like, what if Jack Bauer was in a show with any sort of decent politics? I we think say regarding... we have time to be proven wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we could be... We watched three episodes, so quite a substantial grain of salt. Um, But uh, Gabriel Basso, who plays Peter Sutherland, our lead, I will say I'm not blown away by this performance, and I don't think that matters. And I'm not sure if that's him. He may be an extraordinary talent. I'm not sure if it's what the writing affords him or if it's, you know, just a a limitation of the genre. But Peter's pretty two-dimensional. Yeah, and I actually will say, to his credit as an actor, the writing doesn't give him much. And I think the direction arguably maybe gives him even less because he's sort of supposed to be a stand-in for me, the viewer. And so Mm -hmm. he is a little... Uh, unopinionated beyond the opinion of I must protect this person I swore to protect and get to the truth which are you know a dri- that's a driving motivation so he's not a character without motivation I follow him I engage with him but I agree with you that in a show that is otherwise populated by a lot of opinionated characters and people who might be villains which gives them a bit more to play with as an actor right because they're trying to make you go are they are they 
they not? He is a character who isn't afforded any of those fun things to do on purpose. And so in a way, at least three episodes in, I both completely agree with you and I think, yeah, that might be this genre. This type of show might not afford him the showcase for his skills and that is its own, you know, part of the bargain as an actor. That is its own skill to say, I will not overact in this role because I know that this role is supposed to be the least interesting person on the show. That's a great point, Chris. I do. It does make me wonder about the future of the show. So the creators have said their plan is to do it sort of in an anthology type plotting where um, within this universe we get different stories that aren't a continuation of the same story, but are still very much in this world. But my question will be, is it like Jack Ryan? Is this a Peter Sutherland series? Or, and if so, I wonder if they'll give him some development then. Just so, you know, because we're going to need some complexity for multiple seasons. And again, only watch three episodes, so who knows? Um, But I have found um, his co-lead, Rose, to be much more compelling so far, um, played by uh, Lucianne Buchanan. I think she's great. And I would love a show where she's the lead um, because she seems to be pursuing the mystery as much as he is. Yeah, her beloved aunt and uncle, her father and mother figure, essentially, are murdered at the beginning. And we know from just a little bit of backstory they show us that she's down on her luck, but very type A, that she'd created a cybersecurity company, which also absolutely tells us that this show is going to go in a, like, dramatic hacker's direction. Uh, But that that fell apart after, like, some big breach, and that she has lost everything in her life, but is extremely driven and extremely intelligent and probably good at hackery things that will become important later. And so she has all of these interesting character traits that we immediately are clued in on. And, you know, again, to the the actor's credit, she's running with that. I I find that character to be over the top in some ways, but also a necessary kind of comic relief compared to Peter. Them hanging out together, on the run together, has a really good odd couple vibe. And I hope that they continue to put them together through the season because they're two, they're two very different energies bounce off each other really well and make up for the lack of personality that I think Peter as a character has. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like they stacked her character with too much. <laughs> and left him with not enough. And but le- when, left him with not when enough. When you so put when them in a together... scene together, it feels right. Yes, 100% actually. Uh, We'll we'll see where it goes. They've said, you know, the creators have said that they envision season two to still have Peter, but they've left everything else pretty much open uh, at this point. Nothing else has been confirmed or really hinted at. There's also a plot point uh, involving Peter's father, who may have been involved with some horrible incident. He was also an FBI agent, I believe. Um, They haven't really given us that full backstory yet in these early episodes. But there's something, too, where Peter's interested in clearing his name, perhaps, or getting to the the bottom of what... name cleared, you know. There's definitely some hints that his father was perhaps actually guilty of something and that Peter might be in denial about that. But that also Peter is not guilty of anything except dedication. Eyes too sparkling. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what other show on Netflix has some real sparkling eyes going for it? Beef. Oh, it's Beef. You're correct. And that's the other show we watched uh, for this episode. The other hot, popular show on Netflix right now. Uh, Beef is 
the, perhaps the polar opposite of the night agent, but is making a name for itself on Netflix's many uh, lists of things. So uh, Beef is now number two on the weekly top TV list behind The Night Agent. That's The Night Agent at number one, Beef at number two. Uh, what I found more interesting about this is uh, this is Beef's second week getting ranked on the weekly list at Netflix. They doubled their viewership hours from week one to week two. So week one, their viewership was at like 35 million, and week two, they did an additional 70 million hours. So Beef is getting huge huge word of mouth. We should also mention that Beef is an A24 production yes, along with Netflix. So uh, media juggernaut A24 uh, strikes again. Yes, as they remind you in the extremely bold title cards before every episode, this is an A24 production. And it sure feels like it. Yeah, it does. Which is not tip. Nothing else on Netflix feels like an A24 show that I've seen. No, it's true. That is actually a, a interesting collab for Netflix, to say the least, and one that I wouldn't have expected. But it speaks really highly to the kind of things they're seeking out right now, that they're trying to play these two tracks simultaneously. The A24 track is the prestige HBO track, and The Night Agent is your, you know, pulpy genre track. Both go together really well. They do. So one thing that Chris and I were saying to each other before we started was that we like both shows a lot. I think objectively, Beef might be better in the sense it's like it, or it's at least more sophisticated. Right. B- beef is better art, but but The Night right. Agent is excellent entertainment. And, and it's great TV. Yeah. But I really wanted to binge and had an easier time binging The Night Agent than I did watching Beef, which sometimes I found so anxiety inducing as to be unpleasant. I think that is by design. It is an effective storytelling technique, but it was sometimes hard to binge and hard to watch. Yeah, I actually think Beef would be served better by a weekly release format. I think it's great that the word of mouth is building, and uh, it's excellent. So wherever it landed is good for Beef. But the way that I feel like I need some space after an episode makes me think this should have been on HBO or Hulu. This should have been an FX production, which, you know, A24 in the same in the same vein. And, you oh, know... Yeah. Uh, Netflix found a good home for this. It was a smart pickup for Netflix, but the tone of the show doesn't make me want to binge, which is unusual for Netflix. The thing that does make me want to binge this show is the two leads. Talk about sparkling eyes. Oh, man. Sparkling everything. They're both beautiful. Um, So that would be uh, the great Ali Wong and Steven Yoon. And they have really good chemistry together, though much of the show is them separate. Yeah, and they have they have really good chemistry with everyone on the show, I would say. Mm-hmm. But then in the scenes that they are in together, they have an explosive chemistry that is really dangerous feeling. So the show is based upon these two characters who are both in different ways really struggling. Danny, who is really hard on his luck. He is a contractor, but he doesn't seem to have a lot of work. And he's in such a dire economic strait that he is, it's revealed in the pilot that he is considering suicide. Uh, Suicide by hibachi grill carbon monoxide poisoning. Extremely specific suicide. Extremely, because he's seen on Reddit or somewhere on the depths of the Internet that this is the least painful way to die. 
Yeah, actually, a small aside, uh, Beef does the internet really well for TV. We see a whole subplot uh, with Amy, that's Allie's character, and Instagram that feels extremely real to how Instagram exists in the world uh, in a way that TV rarely nails right. Uh, and so a lot of these things where he's like looking up uh, the, the suicide on the internet when he is, uh, you know, texting or receiving calls, all their interactions with their devices feel really genuine. And the way that uh, technology really constantly nags at their lives. In particular, I think of um, Ali Wong's character, Amy, and her relationship with her husband, George. Not a great mm. relationship a- as we continue to go layers deeper. And so many little scenes with them are either interrupted or disrupted by something happening with one of their phones. And there is something really real about how they handle that, where it doesn't feel like a ham-fisted plot device. It feels like, yes, that is how people like this are constantly on their phones. And I include myself in some of that. But you, you do look at it, and you part of why you want to turn away sometimes is you see yourself in these characters who are making really objectively bad decisions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and they really seem like characters who wouldn't necessarily know each other. I mean, they live in the same city, but for all of you know, Danny's uh, financial struggles. Amy lives in this stunning home. And when we meet her at the beginning, she's on the brink of making a major deal, uh, wherein her plant store, which is like a high-end plant store, I think, with like different sculptures and stuff, is about to be bought out by a a major retail, like, uh, juggernaut. Yeah, it's like a Home Depot. I think I used but the like word a, juggernaut twice. Like a highbrow Home Depot. Well, it is a juggernaut. The The vibes that we yeah. get from uh, the, the woman who owns highbrow Home Depot, Jordan, is very, you know, um, Sheryl Sandberg, kind of uh, extraordinarily wealthy, badass boss bitch vibes that Ali Wong's character sort of aspires to and sort of wants nothing to do with the more you get to know her. That what we we learn very quickly through the first couple of episodes is she has become this incredibly successful entrepreneur with her fancy plant company, but that she really hates being the boss, and she hates spending all this time at work, and she has been trying to get Jordan at Fancy Home Depot to buy her out for two years now, and all she wants is to sign this deal so she can take a break and spend more time at home with her daughter. And obviously, nothing is happening to make that work out for her. None of that is going according to her plans. No, and I like that in a lot of ways, she is not the typical homemaker character that we see women often in media. Like, she's uh, so smart, so driven, and sometimes, and you know, she's really prickly. Often when we see homemaker characters on TV and film, I feel like they're like, warm and matronly and this is not that at all so that's kind of an exciting new character yeah and i you know what's funny is i had a similar reaction but in a different direction which is to see a female you know businesswoman character somebody with a lot of power and influence and a powerful career who's a female character who doesn't want to keep doing that and because we see mm-hmm. so many female characters in business-related roles in TV now who are, like, driven and really focused and, and they don't care about family and they don't care about their personal life because they've worked so hard to be the boss. And that is 
you know, that was progress to see that represented on TV at some point, sure, but that is not realistic to so many people's lived experiences and is not realistic to women in the workforce. Just, you know, if you look at the data and the statistics, so many are torn between wanting to spend more time at home and wanting to have more time for their personal life while maintaining their career and not being seen as weak or not willing to go all the way. And so there's something really, really real in Amy's dilemma that she has achieved so much and she wants so much but that she hates so much of what she has to do to get there and would like to switch roles with her husband she you can sense that she wishes he was at work all day and that she was at home because she feels like she's not getting anything out of this but we get glimmers of his business instincts and they're They're bad they're They're bad bad. he's fun He's really interesting because he's somebody who, on the surface, he's he's very attractive, he's very caring, he seems very supportive, like, what a good spouse. And then at the same time, the more, the more scenes you get with him, the more you see how she could feel that he is a completely inept, weak-willed, kind of spineless brat who both smiles at you and says, you need to meditate on that if you just thought about it positively, everything would be better, and then turns around and jerks off to the Instagram of your employee at the flower store on his phone. Yes, that was not a winning moment for him. No, no. And and, and again, many small not-a-winning moments for him led up to that not-a-winning moment for him where you begin to see the cracks, and it does feel very real in that there's not one big betrayal. In fact, if anything, the person who's betraying anyone is Amy, is, you know, keeping all kinds of crazy secrets from her husband right now because she's kind of going down this unhinged rabbit hole in her beef with Danny, which is the heart of the show. But what has really been exciting to me about the show and made me want to watch all of it, even if I need to space it out a bit, is that the whole ensemble and the whole world that they're, they're building is so much more interesting than the core conceit led me to think it would be. I I really didn't know I would be so excited to spend so much time with the B stories of this show. But in fact, like, the A story gets the least amount of screen time overall because it's ten episodes, and we can't spend all ten episodes with these two people literally beefing with each other nonstop because that's not interesting by itself. That has to be the climax, and then it recedes a bit. And we see how this kind of explosion in their personal lives has fallout all around them in all their relationships. I agree, though I think for both of them, what that A story does is it gives them the will to live. Yeah. When in for both of them, they were just really at their breaking points. And we see them, you know, in these explosive moments of anger, but also of deep anguish, which is a tone I wasn't sure we'd get from the show, but we do. And uh, I think expressed really beautifully. And so when we see that they have this fire in their lives now, that ripples out into every other part of their life. So for someone like Amy, she, you know, like maybe isn't going to deal with this from her partner anymore. Like maybe she's going to start demanding and asking for more. You know, I, I don't know because I've only seen a few episodes, but uh, like it seems like they're both becoming bolder people, even as they make these incredibly self-destructive decisions. Yeah, they're becoming bolder, and the decisions they're making seem to be getting worse 
I would say, that they are making escalatingly bad decisions based on this disruption in their lives that has kind of unmoored them uh, in a way that they might have needed. Because again, Danny was on the verge of ending his own life. And so in one respect, this saved his life. And in another respect, he is making a series of bad choices that we, the audience, just have to watch. And we are riding along with him with no way to stop him. Another thing that I really love about this series is that the world is specifically Asian that they've built here, but it's not in some like generalized way Asian. We have characters who are Japanese, characters who are Korean, characters who are Chinese. They acknowledge the differences among those groups, but it's not in any way that feels cliche. It just seems really original and interesting. And I I don't think that I've seen too much content like this in that sense, too, uh, which I felt really, really excited by. Yeah. And it also speaks so specifically to this, like, uh, you know, California uh, way of life in so many ways. Partly, I, I was thinking of it from the very specific communities, especially Asian communities, but any part of California, you have all of these really specific communities that are spread out and people drive all around and there's references to, you know, she's a rich bitch from Calabasas or -hmm. what are you doing here in Orange County? And even if you don't really know the topography of California, these these specific communities lend a real sense of um, grounded verisimilitude to be real fancy about it. It just makes it feel real and makes it feel specific and when they talk about oh that you know she thought you were chinese not korean or they you can't date a white girl and bring them home to mom and dad these things that they just root these people in really specific backgrounds and communities that whether you know that community or not you're now feeling like you're observing something more intimate something more personal And they're dealing with their families and their personal lives. So it all connects back to the themes of the show really well. That doesn't feel unrelated, but it also doesn't feel like the focus of the show. Yeah, and I think that the anger that they tap into is so specifically American. And I love that it's American through this lens. Yeah, and and the other California side to me, but this is also just inherently American with the exception of us in New York City, is that it's about cars. It's about road right. rage. The The event that kicks this off is simply a, a moment of road rage in the parking lot of Fancy Home Depot that escalates into a car chase that gets filmed on somebody's, like, you know, ring security camera and goes up on next door. And the, the looming thing and threat in the background through so much of this season is the people passing around this video of this crazy you know, road rage incident, and Amy in particular, but I think Danny's going to see this video in all eventuality too, knowing those are their cars and just nobody can see the plates in the video, that they they could be caught for having their most unhinged moment publicly, and one that threatened lives. What they did was intensely dangerous, and they did it over a parking lot like, oops, I backed up and didn't see you incident. Yeah, the increasing recklessness absolutely uh, continues to raise the stakes of the show. But I think at the same time, the personal moments that we're getting from these characters are like smaller and more intimate. So I love that it, it seems like it's growing on both ends at the same time. 
Yeah, and it is doing a good job of kind of setting up a rhythm, but um, not letting you fall into a comfortable pace with the show. I, I think of the first two episodes, both seemingly end with a moment of escalation, where Danny mm-hmm. escalates things. And at the end of the first episode, the first episode, uh, as we near the end, Ali Wong's character has taken a gun out of the safe in the house. And we have gotten the hint from her husband that he changed the code on the safe because he He doesn't like how she gets when she has the gun in her hands. And she has the gun when Danny shows up to get his revenge for the road rage incident. And what is his... My skin was crawling at that moment because there is a gun. And he is here to get some kind of revenge for his life that has gone horribly wrong in his eyes. And what does he do? He pees on her bathroom floor and runs down the street. And that that level of, like, they heighten me to such a terrifying degree. And then, you know, faced with what do I do in this situation, he does something really juvenile because I don't really know what you do in that situation. And then at the end of the second episode, they bring us to another moment like that where she is now spray-painted or painted his car with, with some really offensive shit, saying, like, I'm poor, mm-hmm. I'm a bad driver. She, she has done a, a really just cruel thing to him. And so he goes seemingly to, like, break her windows or perhaps physically threaten her. And that is the closing moment of episode two. And episode three opens up and we find out almost immediately that, like, the security light at the the front door camera went on. Then he tripped and fell down the stairs and it was really goofy and embarrassing and he ran away. And they haven't really engaged with each other for a little bit since then. And that was a great moment to me of of the show going, yeah, no, we're not just going to keep escalating between the two of them ad nauseum until they murder each other. This is about how their escalating with each other ripples out in their lives, and inevitably they will come back to each other because the, the tendrils are there. They're connected now. But it was a great moment of me going, oh, I don't know what direction this show is going. It knows more than I do. I agree, though, knowing how much that house means to her and what a status symbol it is to her... I don't think that I find the incident of peeing on the floor juvenile in a way to me. It's 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 like really aggressive and and like a violation. Like if someone really did that to you, you would be mortified. You'd be beyond upset. Oh, I'd be really I angry. Think. But but I think you, you nail such a good point there, which is he doesn't have any of the context for what a violation that is to her. He thinks that she has violated him lightly and he has come to figure out how to screw with her basically and and so to him I, I this just feels like he's pulling a fast one i don't think he has any sense of how significant that act was i really think he had no idea what he was going to do when he got there and just kind of pulled something out of his ass at the last minute i agree with that but to me that's uh like i don't think any woman would feel that way and I'm making a generalization here, so I apologize if you're a woman who would feel that way about like, cool. a stranger coming to your house and peeing on your floor. But I think there's something about the way that he keeps saying, like, oh, is your husband home? And we know he's doing that mm-hmm. to genuinely get information. But as a woman alone at home, that's a major security risk. And you're feeling like physically threatened and someone peeing on you. It, it feels like like a dangerous threat. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think there's something heightened about the physicality of it. 
I think that's totally right. And what I love about it is that the show puts us in between their two perspectives so that we can see Mm -hmm. how, you know, they don't see each other for what was really going on. He doesn't understand that he's doing that so much. Like, from my perspective as a viewer, when he is inquiring about the husband, he's trying to figure out if he can screw with her or if somebody's going to come and interrupt him and beat him up. That he's still just fishing for, like, now that I'm the dog that caught the car, what do I do? And Mm -hmm. and at the same time, I see her reaction to that question. And her reaction to that question is, oh, God, that's really scary. Why did you ask that? Yeah. There is a moment where you think, oh, my God, could they be friends uh-huh. <laughs> when in that in the pilot when they're in the garage and he's showing her that she has some some structural issues she needs to fix. And it's going to be, you know, a bunch of work. They've already done a bunch of work. And she goes, God, it's always one more thing. And he empathizes her, with her in that moment because that has been his experience. And it's such a beautiful glimpse into if their interaction had gone differently how they could have been a force for good in each other's lives. You know what I mean? Or or even just friends. They both really seem to need a friend. Yeah, they really do. And I do think they both have a lot in common in that they don't feel seen by the other people in their lives. And they, they desperately want to be. They desperately mm-hmm. want to feel like they're the winner for once. And they never feel that way. And And I, you know, the sad irony of the show is that they take it out on each other. Yeah. But to me, that also, so it's so personal, but it's so global. And the fact that like these little personal grievances and and personal shortcomings and and moments of unhappiness could spread to something akin to like a civil war. For me, it just it just really feels so deeply American right now. Like, I feel like they've captured the national mood in a way that is part of the reason I find it so, so difficult to watch. Agreed. Agreed. And so as you know, we have said repeatedly through this, it's not a show that either of us want to sit down and binge. And it is also one of the best shows either of us has seen all year and yeah. is one that I am confident we will both finish. Uh, and again, that's really interesting for Netflix, I have to say. And the more I think about this show, the more I think it would be at home on so many other uh, venues, be it a, a cable network or a streamer that is uh, comfortable with weekly releases, but they, they landed on the binge the binge network, and I, I hopefully a lot of people are binging it. Uh, and and if you have the stomach for that, tell us how you got there. Write to us podcast at streamageddon.com. We want to have the constitution you have to binge something that that truly makes my skin crawl sometimes, uh, much like. Many of my other favorite shows, such as Party Down, which I have still not finished the new season of, not because I don't love it, but because Ron makes my skin crawl. But I love him. Me too. That is why I keep coming back. But it is why that is a show that I I watch one episode in a night and I go, oh, you know what I could use after that? A little night agent. A little night agent. Yeah. And then you watch a night agent and you're like, you know, I could do one more before bed because that is some bingeable stuff. Ah, and if you are binging any of these shows, be it Nike times Netflix or (laughs) night times agent or just beef, well, tell us about it. 
podcast at streamageddon.com is where you do. Uh, and until next time, we are obviously going to keep watching both of these shows, though I think you, listener, can get, guess which one we will both finish first. But regardless, there's so much good TV out there. You know what you have to do. Say it with me, Diane. Keep, keep streaming. streaming. Ooh, night agent. Ooh, night agent. Night agent. <laughs> <laughs>